Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. Tonight is February 9th of 2012. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Our guest tonight will be Tato Sokadze and Chris Stewart. Uh, Tato is a PhD and Chris is an MD. They've been working together at the University of Kentucky Louisville studying biofeedback as applied to addictions treatment. We're going to bring them on in just a second. Before we do that, I'm going to do a quick little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge lay led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits. From safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. So I'm going to bring our guest on right now. Tato, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, yeah. And thank you for inviting to your radio show. You're very welcome. Chris, how are you? I'm uh, I'm well, and again, I uh, uh, agree with the sentiments expressed by Tato. Thanks a lot for having us on, and look forward to a uh, enjoyable conversation. Well, I really am glad that you came, and I'm going to start right in with the uh, discussion about biofeedback. Sometimes it's called neurofeedback. It's uh, with EEGs, and. Uh, is uh, this biofeedback treatment, um, let's start with uh, Chris, and we'll kind of go back and forth. Uh, is this biofeedback, is it used as a standalone treatment for addictions, or is it used as an adjunct to uh, other treatments? So it, it certainly can be used in, in, in addiction, and there are even a couple of facilities, uh, and Tato can jump in anytime here, that uh, even use or, or peer use neurofeedback and biofeedback in the treatment of addiction. It's certainly used for a lot of other problems as well. And I could say it also can be used in, as an adjunctive treatment as well. It doesn't um, exclude other treatments, so you can use it with other approaches. And it also can contain an, a, a, the approach in and of itself, if that's what you're asking. As far as the way I use it and the way uh, I use it in working with Dr. Sakadze is we see patients, uh, and I'm often using uh, a variety of methods, and it's, I would say we use it adjunctively uh, or uh, in addition to whatever else we're doing in, in, our, in our different programs at the, at the University of Louisville. Uh, but Tato can probably talk to more about it in general as an overall approach in addiction um, about well, how it's used uh, throughout the country. Okay, Tato, uh, I'm going to ask you a little history here. Um, there's something called the Peniston Protocol. I think this is the earliest thing we see with uh, this biofeedback and addiction. Tell us what that is and what it was used with, and give me some details about the Peniston Protocol. Well, uh, I would say that, um, well, uh, it uh, became a famous as the Peniston Protocol back in late 90s, but eventually that was a modification of a protocol that was started by Elmer Green and other people at Manninger Foundation. So uh, what a Peniston did, um, so it was basically training of uh, two different slow waves, uh, brain waves, one is called alpha, 8 to 13 hertz, and another is theta, even slower, 4 to 8 hertz. Okay, and so it was already used before that, and there were a couple of publications when it was used both individually and in group training um, for alcohol and other drug abuse. But uh, what uh, Peniston did, he added uh, um, two very important um, techniques to that. Actually, Peniston was trained by people of uh, Green, like uh, Dale Walter, so it's, uh, he was one of uh, their adepts. All right? so, and his technique, besides changing this alpha and theta, and it is called alpha-theta rhythm, all right? increase of um, proportion or um, power of alpha and then increase of power of theta and then their ratio to have more theta rather than alpha and in that state uh, subject gets in a, um, some kind of hypnagogic state 
like very relaxed and uh, susceptible to some suggestions. And what he was using is that he had a script. That was a script that he used where um, this uh, experimenter was telling the therapist uh, to patient um, some phrases. It was like guided imaginary. So uh, it's about uh, being sober, about refusing offers to alcohol, and being uh, more confident and happy. So it was like a script that he used. Uh, plus, before uh, this EEG and brainwave training, he also introduced some introductory part that was training of temperature. First, uh, mm -hmm. temperature, it's easier to control, mm -hmm. right? And uh, uh, a patient can see that it is changing visually very easy. Uh, plus, he used uh, some autogenic training. So this is German technique when you, you know, say this uh, certain phrases. So it was, so Peniston protocol actually was more rather than just neurofeedback. It had uh, this uh, preliminary introduction when you do this relaxation to get to a specific stage. Then with this uh, training, when you get in this set uh, uh, state and you got all this script and guided imaginary, and after session, he was doing also discussion and talks at remediation because most of patients that he had, they were actually VA inpatients. Most of them veterans with alcohol uh, problems and basically almost all of them had PTSD. So he did some replication study compared with the control groups that were doing other uh, treatments. And uh, so it, it was uh, actually coming with the changes in mm, some psychological measures in personality improvement. So it was neurofeedback, but eventually he was the first who started combining with other therapeutic intervention, like guided imaginary and talking about uh, this. So it was like interaction like um, during CBT. So, so maybe that's why it was successful, because um, it was a combination of two different or even more techniques of self-regulation and uh, um, behavioral therapy. So let me repeat this back and make sure I've got it right. So <laughs> Penniston, um, he started with, uh, with actually not the biofeedback, but with temperature control, teaching people to lower yes, their... for several minutes before, during session. So you start with this. So uh, subject gets relaxed. Then he started... So it all comes with eyes closed with the two sensors that are attached to the back side of the head, occipital visual cortex. Usually it has a higher alpha during eyes closed. And then uh, they hear auditory some uh, sound um, showing that uh, this specific wave uh, power of alpha is increasing, that they were supposed to increase theta, and when proportion of theta to alpha was reaching like three to one ratio, that was the state that they were looking for. And it was running for 20 minutes or up to 30 minutes. And it was accompanied either by this guided imaginary. So imagine the situation you are, somebody's offering you to drink and you are refusing. And after the sessions, they were also talking about experiences and um, uh, eventually um, doing a kind of a therapy. So people would uh, would uh, change their alpha rhythm, and when they got the correct alpha rhythm, they would hear a tone, and then they would uh, change the theta, and they would hear a different tone. And this would, they and would then be in a hypnagogic state, and then he would use the guided imagery about drink refusal and having a good sober life. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Uh, yes, very much like that. Uh, through in some modifications, sometimes they were doing script before that, but mostly they were doing when uh, the patient is in this uh, state that he called the reverie. Okay, and the Peniston protocol was used with people with alcohol problems, but did it work for all drug problems? Um, no, no. Well, uh, eventually... Uh, 
the Penistone pr protocol was replicated several times in other settings, including we had um, this uh, grant when we did this exactly the same study replication through with a um, little bit of modification of this guided imaginary part. We did it back in Siberia, both with inpatient um, subjects with alcohol dependent and outpatient. And it was very successful, but uh, you were using that eventually. With, uh, al weren't you using that in alcohol withdrawal as well? You were helping people detox using that protocol in Siberia. Uh, yes, yes. This in patients, they, uh, we had them um, uh, 25 or 26 of them. They were all in patients during um, withdrawal, and they were staying there for 28 days. We did 15 to 18 sessions for each uh, patient. And but we had another group with outpatients coming, so and it was replicated in several other settings as well, but um, I don't think that um, it was a good idea to use it with um, those who were using stimulants or other drugs, um, and it was another um, modification of this protocol, and um, we call it Scott Kaiser protocol, where. They were working also with patients, and they had 120, I think, patients, and most of them were um, mixed substance users. So they were doing not uh, only alcohol, but drug, uh, drugs like heroin and cocaine. And uh, in uh, their case, starting with Penistone Protocol was not doing any good. So mm -hmm. that's why they started first part uh, was a training that is usually used for um, attention deficit. There, instead of, uh, and in case of attention deficit, you already have enough of theta. Actually, it is um, interacting with attention, and that's what they train in children with ADHD, lower theta and increase theta. So proper, theta is a higher frequency, uh, like 12 to 18, and uh, uh, so in Scott Kaiser protocol, first you do improve uh, your attention. Uh, you get in the mode. You, you, you start and run for 12 sessions doing this. Um, let's say um, either it's a better uh, increase, set a decrease, or SMR. SMR is another reason. 12 to 15 hertz during uh, muscle relaxation when motor system is not active, so doing the same job. So that was um, eventually like introductory part before they were ready to move to Penistone protocol, usually after um, 12 or 15 sessions. And before that, they were even checking whether they improved on some neurocognitive tests showing that the attention and ability to participate in um, training like this was good enough to go for a uh, part that included Penistone Protocol. Okay, this leads me to a question I think it's good to ask Chris because um, I think you said Chris had studied this. Um, Chris, are there, um, are there predisposing factors towards addictions that you can see in EEGs and are there also effects that drugs have on the brain that you can see in EEGs? Well, that's an interesting question about predisposition. Uh, when we look at folks, uh, we've been looking at people who already are using drugs, who already become addicted, and uh, who have uh, uh, certainly trouble with relapse. Uh, and what we see is one of the things that predispose people to relapse from an EEG or evoked potential perspective is something called Q-reactivity, where we see um, increased uh, reactivity of certain drug cues um, and those uh, can be, you can reduce that using neurofeedback, which is the interesting uh, part about the treatment that we think we can probably reduce the incidence of relapse and reduce um, drug use by reducing Q-reactivity. And that's even something that NIDA has come out and said is uh, important in helping maintain recovery or help uh, promote recovery in people from addiction. But to say... Um, what are factors in the EEG that predispose? Um, Dado, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, um, I, I can tell a little bit about that because there was a lot of study with EEG done, and we have it all in our reviews uh, showing for specific type of drugs, 
there is um, more or less a clear uh, EEG profile, typical, say, for alcohol uh, users, for those um, with chronic uh, cocaine or um, heroin use. So, um, but the, the question still remains, so whether these EEG profiles or EEG signatures of these individuals are a result of using this drug and eventually this neurotoxicity evoked changes or there were some premorbid conditions that actually driving them or they had a such EEG phenotypes that was actually uh, making them more prone to develop dependence or develop addiction for this specific uh, substance. So it, it, it is uh, still not clear whether some of EEG characteristics of individual is a kind of a trait uh, that may individual traits that predispose them uh, to become addicted or it is the result of chronic use. Even so, each of substance had um, its own signature that you can tell, especially during withdrawal or during well, long-term use of particular drug. So it's still unresolved question. Okay. Whether there is, that's why there are some protocols, and we mentioned them. Uh, those are called um, some QEG-guided neurofeedback for addiction. There, for example, Jay Gunkelman in um, California, he's doing uh, this open-label study. So he tries to do brain mapping using quantitative EEG analysis and then compares to some standard um, databases with EEG recorded from thousands of people and to see what is deviation in this or that particular QEG characteristic. And he tries to train to get it back to the norm, well, being guided by this um, database so or some scores that I derived from this database. So this is like individual approach. This is not exactly like what is supposed to be as a standard protocol. Like Aniston protocol, you use this or that frequency. In a Scott Kaiser protocol, you use this or that, and so on. So here it's like individual approach depending of what is the picture of your individual who is in treatment. Okay. I want to go back to Chris now. Um, when we're talking about Peniston protocol, the equipment they were using, um, it sounded a tone for their correct alpha and a tone for their correct uh, uh, delta. And uh, is the equipment more advanced now? Um, tell me about what kind of uh, EEG equipment <laughs> there is available now. Well, there's some pretty... Um Advanced equipment that Dr. Sakatsi uses in in the in our, in our neuroscience lab, but there's actually some really uh, interesting equipment that is smaller, more compact, and uh, more user friendly to the clinician who, like myself, who works in the outpatient setting. Mm -hmm. um, you can actually um, now you can actually do EEG in your uh, in your office. It's much easier, I find it much easier and much more uh, accessible to use more autonomic measures right there in the in the office and uh, and monitor things like heart rate variability, skin conductance, um, respirations, and EKG. Um, uh, including in when you are doing virtual reality exposure treatment, right? Right. Yeah, yeah we have a, we have a we have a virtual reality uh, treatment program at the clinic, and we will use autonomic measures when we're you know, using the exposure protocol in, in the virtual reality for different types of anxiety. Uh, and we'll, that's actually very uh, small equipment. There's actually a little earpiece that, that has a sensor that plugs into the USB drive of my computer and I can use and with a program I can I can use it right there in my office to monitor someone. And um we could we have been able to hook that up for EEG as well. There's a, you can have a helmet and and uh and, and get a get a monitor and, and use that as well if you want to. That's a little more complicated, but um this definitely gonna be uh, and definitely is already a lot more move towards equipment that is gonna be available, inexpensive 
and uh, readily able to use by clinicians in their office. And it's already going on. It's already happening. But it's going to get even more so, I think. And and if folks like myself can do it in, in my office in Louisville, Kentucky, I know that it's going on in other places, but it's going to, it's going to be uh, more well, and more. We were uh, also planning to install uh, this cabinet at the JDAC. JDAC is the Jefferson County um, Alcohol and Drug Abuse uh, Treatment Center, which is operated by Metro, by, you know, the city um, authorities. So, and uh, Chris is a clinical director there, but it were kind of organizational issues. And another issue was that uh, the patients there usually stay only two weeks, and so we were not be able in any case to do more than 10 sessions, which is not enough. The number of sessions in neurofeedback really matters. Right. So um, usually right. you are looking for at least 20 and 10 sessions or at least 12. Uh, while in um, um, the best cases, it should be 20 to 30. 10 is not enough. Yeah, that's another problem with the uh, the treatments that they do require a high number of visits. And when you're working with patients who are who are addicted, they um, they do uh, that. Sometimes is a challenge to get them to to make that many visits, uh, particularly outpatient and, and, and in enough frequency. And so, with and he's right with treatment stays getting shorter for mm-hmm. uh, for inpatient stays. It's harder to get um, I guess good data about um, effective uh, approaches in. in in those folks here in here in Louisville, but but we've been able but, to do uh, a lot we of tried, We had uh, several years ago. We did uh, a grant that used besides neurofeedback, also motivational interviewing. Uh, it was in cocaine addiction uh, patients only. Uh, were motivational uh, interviewing and motivation enhancement treatment by um, was done to get them engaged in neurofeedback for outpatients. So and it helps. It helps retention. Yeah. But he he was asking about um, about you know can we can we do can, is this equipment you know he was asking about the equipment and how advanced is it. Uh, I, I can of, tell more about the equipment. I can tell more about the equipment. In in our lab, we have uh, probably twelve different systems all. Uh, for neurofeedback, starting from very simple systems that have only one channel, for example, good enough to do EEG, a channel we call one side of recording, or two mm-hmm. sides of recording, and um, up to 10, even more. But um, it depends on what kind of a protocol you are using. Uh, as I mentioned, in that protocol with eyes closed, it was auditory feedback. Now we have um, um, mostly not only auditory, but we have visual feedback when you see, for example, some movie going on and you control the size of a screen depending on this or that measure, how it's higher and lower of the threshold that you set. At the same time, you may see bars and you see the real EEG and calculate it and it shows different additional measures like uh, how successful you are, how um, long you stayed over the threshold and so on. So they are also different kind of a games that might be you know more attractive to some users um, when they play a game and collect scores so there um, now um, we, we call it protocol and there is also the kind of a screen that you show them or um, well um, depending what is uh, better in particular case so there is a lot of uh, selection and some of these clinicians they may change the screens adjust so more or less doing the same job with the different screens or a different modifications way of presentation of feedback besides that lately there are several devices that are not for clinical use but uh, say for home use uh, well, some of them, they are real neurofeedback, but they are mostly quasi-neurofeedback. They are doing the same job. They uh, show you uh, EEG, and you can use at home computer for some games or some applications that are like neurofeedback. But um, I think that uh, since this is a treatment, this is a training process, so first, this individual has to learn this with somebody who is experienced and certified in the neurofeedback because 
um, you learn the basic of it, and then you can continue using the home devices, and some of them might be under thousands and a couple of hundreds, uh, once you learn how to do it in a, a clinician's office. That's a really good uh, point that I think I'd like to tap, that eventually uh, what you're going to see is, what you aim with, it's already happening too. Uh, somebody comes in, has a neurofeedback session uh, where they get trained in uh, modifying their EEG. And then they go home and they take equipment home with them and they practice at home on, at, on their computer. And that's going to be the, and so in, in the past where you had to have 20, 30 sessions on an inpatient setting, now you're going to have patients going home and doing this and coming back and, and um, being able to use this and then and use it indefinitely. And, and obviously that uh, has a lot of ramifications for treatment, I think. Well, Okay. How do people feel after they do a neurofeedback session? Do they say, I feel great, or what's the reaction? I think that it's, uh, the Tato can say some, but all, all, what I'll say is uh, sometimes they'll say they're tired. Uh, they'll, they'll, they even might have a headache sometimes. Uh, they, it's like they've been to the gym and they worked out, you know, and they, mm. uh, they do feel like they, they've been concentrating or uh, using aspects of their, their brain that they weren't um, uh, used to using, and um, sometimes, because uh, we do use uh, in, in trauma, sometimes uh, there'll be emotions that have come up, uh, and, and there are times, too, where folks do feel a lot better. But I think a lot of times they'll they'll feel tired. Well, uh, if you ask me, I, I, I do not rely that much, and I do not collect this, um, well, subjective reports, because uh, what we do, well, because we do this neurofeedback for clinical and research purposes. So for me, it's more important how they behavior during all this battery of cognitive and emotional tests that we have at the lab, how they respond to that. So I rely less on any subjective reports or just the clinical evaluations, but rather on these other equipment that we have. And basically, this is a modification that you can call something uh, as a light detector used in a lab to understand whether they still continue to overreact to drug-related cues or how they react to general emotional cues and emotional stimuli and whether they improved on some cognitive or attention tests. So these are the measures that I believe in that they really show any changes because I'm yeah, a psychophysiologist. Got, you know, and so, so yeah. without that, and what you hear from patients, it's not enough for me uh, to be sure that we really have some changes. And how EEG and the topography of this brain waves changed post-treatment, this is what I'm looking for. Sure. That's, but that, um, that's, was that what you're at? I think Kim was asking too, just how people feel subjectively after they've been mm-hmm, through a session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, uh, yeah, but I, I, I had this add-on because, uh, yeah, well, yeah. We, I'm in research, so I care. So what is actually changing? What is the proof that is changing other than just a, you know, re- report that, yeah, now I'm doing better and I do uh, less uh, use or so on? because uh, we do it for research purposes, so we have to document. Furthermore, whatever is recorded during neurofeedback, um, I'm analyzing. So if, for example, we do neurofeedback like we were doing in this cocaine neurofeedback study, I was recording also heart rate, skin conductance, muscle tension to tell how emotional state was changing during session and how different brain waves were correlating and what was going on during these 12, 15 sessions so to see what was eventually changing. And that we do in other neurofeedback applications as well. For example, we are going to publish now a paper about uh, using uh, this protocol similar to first part of Scott Kaiser protocol but in um, individuals with attention deficit. But we record each individual brain wave and their proportion and how they are changing within this half an hour of training from one session to session 12 and how it changed from session 12 to 18 and so on. So it is important to understand what's going on. It's not like a black box. You started, that was one measure, clinical, and then after 30 sessions you measured and some clinical improved and you ask subject and he's feeling better. Uh, unless you understand what was going on and how it was changing, 
So this is important, at least from um, you know approach that we are using in the lab. Oh, absolutely. And I do want to get on to the clinical evidence in a little bit. But before we get to that, there's a couple of points that I was just thinking about that I want to bring up just briefly. Uh, one is, you know, if if people are finding this neural feedback to be useful to them, I was wondering if we could – if it would be possible sometime in the future, maybe not yet, but to have it as a drop-in service. Like um, when people go to uh, a harm reduction program, uh, they often offer uh, acupuncture as a drop-in service because, you know, people report that it helps them a lot and it makes them feel better. So, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, would well, this you're totally, be something? You're totally, uh, I'm with you. I'm with you all the way, Ken, and uh, we want to do that, and we um, – we have a grant where we actually now where where we you can you're saying when I hear drop in I'm thinking either where you're getting treatment they're going to uh, offer it uh, in addition to whatever the normal treatment uh, maybe you're are you talking about at the home uh, are you saying well, drop in at the home or 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 and our, and we we, uh, we have a, a suboxone program at U of L at the University of Louisville and one of our grants that we have right now or we're we're hoping to get funded is going to be adding neurofeedback um, uh, and basically um, uh, uh, biofeedback treatment to uh, an already uh, to a patient who's already being treated in a uh, suboxone program in our clinic who's taking suboxone for opioid dependence and is already receiving treatment as usual. We're going to add that onto their 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 treatment and. Uh, and, and compare it to, to folks who are just receiving treatment as usual. And we're definitely going to be using it in that context as an add-on drop or a, a, a something they can add on. And then uh, absolutely would be something that those uh, patients as well could even incorporate at home, particularly with the way computers are now and the way they're going to keep progressing and technology is going to keep improving. Mm-hmm. Those are both really good. I was thinking of things like... Um, there's the Harm Reduction Therapy Center in San Francisco, or there's the Lower East Side Harm Reduction Center here in New York City. Um, you know, they serve a population that's very difficult to reach. And the people that come for services there, they come when they want to get the service. They don't make right. points, so can you? They drop you know, in. That's, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, totally. Uh, like a drop-in group, uh, or uh, mm-hmm. Jeannie Little has a group in San Francisco where she does that. And uh, exactly, exactly. And, yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know if it will. You know, I, it's not going to hurt, and it very well may help. Uh, it very well may get some. You may get some benefit from that. I think that's that's a big question right now. Because you have to have a number of sessions to to really show uh, robust results. You have to go through a number of training sessions to get, I think, to what we consider to be desirable effects or real measurable effects. But um, uh, could it benefit in in brief sessions? I mean, we've been trying to also push mm-hmm. the 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 number and see how low we can get it and still get a real good effect. Um, and and that's and, and I think that's probably going to be something like you know with technology things get smaller and more efficient and uh, I don't know how. But yeah. Well, we are working that, on development of carry-on devices, and that might right. be used while you drive uh, while you are in subway or driving your car. So there, there is a possibility right. to make uh, these devices smaller and uh, you know carry on so but um the the question that Ken asked was um also yeah what is a, a, a better population so uh talking about and chris mentions this uh suboxone clinics that we have here at the university of louisville and uh it brings also one very um very interesting and serious question all right. So these patients um, that are opiate addicted and they are on suboxone on maintenance program, they still have, and not only them, basically uh, everybody who is drug dependent on has uh, real developed drug abuse, they have uh, problems that are emotional. 
So mm. emotional problems like alexithymia, the state of deficit in understanding or processing emotions, or dysphoria where they are not able to experience positive emotions, or changes in a mood, or anhedonia, so low emotional reactivity and low hedonic tone, which is uh, might be partially result of uh, drug use and another uh, might be predisposition. So somebody who has a low hedonic tone, so it is driving him to take drugs. So now one of the protocols that we are introducing, and specifically for this uh, group of patients that are very good in patients, they are outpatients, so they are coming every week, uh, is uh, to develop such neurofeedback protocols that are aimed to improve control of emotional state. In this case, we are using higher frequency EEG uh, brain waves recorded from prefrontal cortex that might be reflecting uh, some dopaminergic inputs. And in several tests that we did and experiments showing that uh, changing this particular parameter may result in better uh, positive emotional state. And that might be of very high importance in general for treatment of drug abuse because emotional abnormalities and deficits there is one of the major parts that are leading to relapse. And that's because, and Chris already mentioned the cure reactivity. So everything that is associated with drugs, every cure, every environment, it has at times very high importance and um, like positive value, while the normal emotions, like everyday emotions, are not that important uh, to those who are actually um, in a um, a drug-dependence. So it is very important to retrain subject, uh, to make him uh, be able to change this uh, ability to experience positive emotions and to control emotional reactivity. And the lower, of course, the drug-related reactivity, which is we call Q-reactivity. Mm-hmm. I just want to, for our listeners that might not be so familiar, Q-reactivity <laughs> is the reacting to a Q, like a drinker sees a bottle of whiskey and wants to drink, or someone that shoots yes. heroin sees a needle and it triggers them to want to... A shoot. It's it's like in more traditional treatment they talk about triggers, and it's reacting to triggers. Isn't that it? Yes, and you're correct. absolutely. But yeah. it also refers to a specific um, operational process that that is can be identified by looking at brain waves on an EEG pattern, and can be identified as Q reactivity as well. So it's no, it's not just even in the description about. Being uh, triggered by uh, your environment to use drugs and experiencing the, the desire to use, it is even more specific and objective than that. Uh, in that, it's, it describes specifically a quantifiable and uh, uh, objective process that can be, you know, and, and looked at on an EEG and seen. And I think that is an important um, lesson to take as well as we're we're talking about taking some ideas that have been. Mm, uh, is a little subjective, although very, very uh, there's a lot of consensus about what they are, and taking it to an, a higher level, I think, of objectivity, you know, and actually saying, hey, this, mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. there, and, and here it is. And uh, that, to me, is one of the things that's been really exciting for me to be involved in this research and, and, and to learn more about this approach because, well, in psychiatry, we have a real problem with the fact that our diagnoses are based on categories of symptoms, they're based on consensus, they're based on a lot of subjectivity or um, what we agree on. And this paradigm, in a lot of ways, uh, gets past that. And um, I think it's also partly responsible for why it is, there's been resistance to its being widely accepted, but at the same time, it's one of the big advantages of it. And I think uh, as soon as we get through to as many folks that, this is a real useful uh, approach. Um, it's it's got a lot of potential to, to to really take off. Okay, I want to ask one more question before we go on to the clinical evidence. And uh, lately, there's a lot of talk in addictions treatment about mindfulness and meditation 
and there's been a lot of studies showing that these are helpful and uh, do the uh, biofeedback states that are induced through the neurofeedback, are they similar to meditative states? I'll say yes, and I'll say that the big difference is that uh, whereas I may use language, uh, you could argue that I'm using language, but also perhaps being in the room with you, if I teach you to meditate or teach you mindfulness, it's still, I'm using a lot of language. Um, that this method adds another dimension to that uh, that is very significant and even could potentially bypass language in the use of teaching meditation and mindfulness uh, and be very specific, whereas I may not be able to tell if you're doing it exactly uh, the most efficient way. If I'm trying to teach you meditation, I can use this uh, measurement. I can look at your EEG or look at other autonomic signs, and I can get a lot better picture about whether you're getting it or understanding it. So I can do it, be more efficient, and spend less time. Uh, and knowing that you're you're getting what I want you to get, and that um, it also then I think causes the treatment to be more um, reliable and valid than it might otherwise be. Uh, I would add to this that uh, initially, that early 70s, when biofeedback as a such emerged, and there were three or four books of a uh, collection of papers published on that, it was called Biofeedback and Self-Regulation, Biofeedback and Self-Control, and a half of chapters and papers there was about transcendental med meditation, autogenic training, and so on. But some of these esoteric techniques <clears throat> actually are instructed control. Uh, so it's a, a training that you follow instructions and you do some procedures uh, according to your uh, uh, Hatha Yoga book, okay? Well, in neurofeedback, it's different. There, you are in control. Nobody teaches you what you do. So you use error and trial. So your task is to increase this bar or to succeed in, in the games that you are doing with neurofeedback where you have to find this state uh, which actually driving you in correct direction. So there is a, this uh, small distinction. While this sure. is a yeah, technique, right it's the following instructions, while in neurofeedback you do it yourself and your instruction just to hit the target, but what you do, uh, this uh, clinician or trainer, he cannot teach you. They might be used for introduction, for example, some respiration training. There might be some elements of meditation or something to get you in there, or that might be one or two suggested techniques that you can use in conjunction, but neurofeedback, you do it yourself, all right? It is not instructed. Okay, and the last topic we want to cover is the clinical evidence and how effective and what measures have you had of clinical effectiveness. I'm going to let Tato start us off. Um well, um, the, the, um, uh, there are the special uh, standards of clinical efficacy. And uh, so these standards, for example, in our uh, field, our domain, were both um, approved by this uh, Applied Psychophysiology Biofeedback so, uh, Society and also by International uh, Society for Neurofeedback Research. And when we tried... Um, to do review and uh, to find where it stands in terms of efficacy. So our conclusions that we had in our review and other chapters, we say that we can tell at the, uh, on existing uh, literature and what we know that uh, some protocols like Peniston Protocol Alpha Theta Training, when it is used um, alone or in combination with beta training, so might be um, probably efficacious for t treatment of alcoholism or some uh, stimulant or mixed substance abuse. But it cannot go higher at this moment rather than this level three. So it is not specific and it is not uh, efficacious that you can claim according to these standards. So it's still a long way to go. But there is... Uh, <clears throat> There is a, some inherited problem when you try 
to meet the standards that I required to call this or that intervention uh, efficacious, clinically um, efficacious, because it requires <clears throat> randomized clinical trial, and uh, uh, the, the way how it's understood, this randomized clinical trial, it actually requires double-blind and uh, so on, which is mm, basically impossible. This design is for pharmacological studies or something else. It is not applied one-to-one -to, -one to biobehavioral treatment like, um, or intervention like neurofeedback because there you cannot do it absolutely blind. So we can do single-blind, so we may have like a sham neurofeedback for one group or use two different protocols, but you cannot make it double blind because you have to adjust thresholds so you have to guide a patient so what to do you have to be actively involved and you have to keep a motivation to go on so that uh, makes a huge problem for us even when we have these discussions about <clears throat> designs this is good enough for um, randomized clinical trial so we are always ending up arguing, I mean, all these neurofeedback uh, providers, neurofeedback specialists, and on the other hand, these clinicians who are used for traditional models, how it should be done. And uh, as a result, so we have problems with our grants, and we have a problem uh, to claim it according to some um, standards that are accepted right now. For example, you were talking um, about several... Okay. Yeah, yeah, for example, several levels. months ago, I received a letter from a group in Germany who decided to do um, what they call the Cochrane report about um, so what's going on, uh, say, in application of neurofeedback in addiction. So for that, they have a standard. So it should be randomized. It should be this or that. And I told them they better do not go for this. It's preliminary at this moment because there are not studies like this yet published. So they are going on a lot of research, but um, it's early to make any conclusion because definitely they will get a negative conclusion because whatever they will review from published literature, they will find that it's not meeting that standard, which is just a one medical standard. It doesn't take into account the specifics of this um, particular procedure. You were talking about the guidelines for evaluation of clinical efficacy, right, Tato, when you were talking about level one, two, three, four, and five, yes. correct? Yes, exactly. And yeah. so I wanted to clarify that you said we're at about a level three, which is probably Yeah, efficacious. level three is still good, yeah. But level no more four is efficacious, and level five is efficacious and specific. It's specific, And yes. you're, you want us to be at level four, and we can't really be at level four because we really have a hard time realistically designing any kind of double-blinded, placebo-controlled type of study uh, using this method. And um, and also, it's a real obstacle to funding, particularly with NIH, when that's the standard and you've got to come up with some way of uh, designing a study where you can actually satisfy that. And so it, it does cause a real bias against studying this type of intervention. And, uh, Not only this, and but many behavioral interventions are also suffering from any behavior, right? Any behavioral intervention, and there, there's, so there's all. It's almost an inherent bias towards pharmacological research, um, and, and and getting and, and that being funded. But I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, I was talking to Tato a little bit on the telephone yesterday about some of these issues. And, you know, good science doesn't make, you know, psychologists follow the rules of physics or they don't make chemists follow the rules of biologists. They all have, you know, different ways to do their thing. And, you know, so, some, of the, some of the things I've seen the pharmaceutical companies accused of, they, like, do ten randomized clinical trials and throw out nine and keep the one that looks best, and that's not proper science either. I'm not going to go there too much, but um, there are different, you know, anyone that's familiar with philosophy of science knows that there are different ways of gathering, you know, proper scientific evidence in different fields. So, you know, to say that the only one way works is it's a bizarre way to do science. I agree. I think um, we are going, so we're, we're uh, and, and I think you're going to also uh, 
get we're going to get there, uh, and and I don't see how it's not going to to happen with with more and increasing evidence that uh, the, these treatments work. It's just uh, the Tato saying that right now it's still premature to come out and say, uh, yeah, this is something that, and that's why research needs to be done. But we do have yeah, yes, there's, but, uh, there's there's definitely support of NIH. NIH is saying, hey, this is research that does need to be uh, performed. There are there are, there's definitely uh, grants that they're they're seeking, and there's some. Um, uh, and you, you we're, we're we're seeing um, um, uh, offers for uh, proposals, uh, seeking proposals for these kind of grants. So I think it's going to be just a matter of time, don't you? Well, it's uh, true. And lately, uh, NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, they are soliciting grants that has uh, mm, neurofeedback in there. Um, and um, well, it's happening for the last three or four years, but well, there, there are these program officers and such who are doing strategy for uh, agency, but there still are reviewers who are, you know, very uh, uh, difficult to convince. But um, uh, what I'd like to say as well, and we didn't uh, mention this in uh, t uh, today's talk, is that, well, one is just a clinical application, all right, but there is the huge potential and developments for neurofeedback as such for non-clinical applications. Because, uh, well, one is that if there is no diagnosis, uh, say, for substance abuse disorder, but there is uh, some, well, abuse that is uh, subclinical. And in all other cases, so neurofeedback is uh, something that can enhance uh, performance to train, to perform better, to do better, like in sport, in golf, in all others, this kind non-clinical applications. And there, you do not need this clinical efficacy at all. So if it works, so you use it so you function better. So you train your cognitive ability so you perform better at school, in sport, uh, you perform better in military, and as an operator, so everywhere where you need to do better than you do. And when you have to learn how to do when you need it on demand. So you have to train this ability to be alert, to be vigilant, to be attentive, and to be uh, the way you have to be in your professional or whatever activity you are doing. So this is big performance training, and this is huge for uh, EEG neurofeedback. Yeah, sometimes, you know, there's sometimes people want to change on their own. This brings us back to what we were talking about before, about this being available, you know, for home use or for a drop-in center. You know, people decide that they wanted to do this. Uh, that brings us to the next question. If people are interested in pursuing uh, neurofeedback treatment for their addictions, for their alcohol problems or other substance abuse problems, uh, where can they find out more information about where to get the treatments about? Um, are there resources? Uh, yeah, well, I would recommend, first of all, there is um, this International Society for uh, Neurofeedback and Research, isnr.org. So it has, uh, well, they changed a little bit, then they have updated new um, website, but it has information of, about all resources, and they publish uh, two journals. One is peer-reviewed journal, which is called a Journal of Neurotherapy, and another is Neuroconnections that they do. It, it's like a news magazine for neurofeedback. Um, they do with APB, which is um, Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback. And they also have the website and access to all the resources, including uh, so what was published on this and what are the materials or whatever you have to learn about this. Uh, and their website is aapb.org. So this two, isnr.org and aapb.org, actually provide information both about the technique in general, introduction, and they have a list of providers in specific regions or areas all across the country. Okay, I think uh, we have covered most of what I had in mind to cover. Do uh, either of you, uh, Chris, do you have anything specific you want to add? Yeah, um, I might want to uh, also um, 
uh, add that there are um, uh, when I talk to people and I uh, work with patients, one of the things that to me has been very very uh, interesting is the response to some of these um, more cerebral concepts around uh, these processes and what they're called that uh, is that are used by neurofeedback particularly. But uh, patients really are in my really respond to the idea of getting a concrete or defined concept to describe their symptom in, in a much more tangible way. And even in, in, in having something like that can be really helpful in helping someone feel like they have control or can deal with their symptom. So when I talk to you about cue reactivity or uh, when I talk to you about attentional bias or if you uh, uh, if we discuss um, error-related negativity, another one uh, that has been in the, these are the, that I have learned, they, uh, they, they, they're really, really... Um, uh, I think fairly easy to convey their meaning to someone, and um, and that can be very useful because I think the more someone understands how their brain works, uh, I think that can be a very helpful uh, tool. And so this also facilitates that uh, this process. Um, also, using the autonomic symptoms and, and teaching someone to be mindful of their body in specific ways uh, to to uh, to be able to follow their heart rate and heart rate variability and to help them learn how to 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 manage that um it it's it's exciting in that uh it's usually pretty novel they've not experienced any kind of approach like that before in the other types of therapies that they've done and they feel uh, they feel much more um empowered and interested it's also it does have more bells and whistles and I think the uh, when it's talked when it's criticized for being a placebo or a, a large placebo response, that's why. But it does in, it can engage people because of that. Um, we're also one of the things we are doing is we are using virtual reality in our uh, in our treatment uh, more and more, particularly for anxiety disorders, using the exposure of virtual reality to end desensitization, but adding on to that um, measures that are. Autonomic measures and also these other measures that I've talked about that really enhances treatment. I think that's another thing. These are going to really enhance a lot of different approaches, and it's trans theoretical. It can uh, be used with a lot of different types of uh, of approaches. Um, the, the 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 thing in psychiatry where we're still stuck on these categories and whether you meet criteria or not. You know, the idea that actually we're going to be looking more and more about just how the brain works. And the, how these processes work, and how intense or, or they are, or what what areas people may have weaknesses in. I think it's going to change radically how we look at mental illness and how we think about illnesses, or it's going to really change how we look at disorders in particular, specific disorders. You know, whereas with PTSD, we certainly see uh, heart rate variability and cue reactivity in different ways. I see it uh, in addiction with cue reactivity. Um, that's not in the DSM-4 right now as a criteria uh, in any way, I, you know, and and, uh, and won't be in DSM-5 either. But it's going to be something really important in how we look at illness. And um, so that, to me, is what I if I that, that's what's exciting about this and what I wanted to add. Okay, Tato, anything you want to add? Well, um, I would add as a first. The one of the greatest potential for neurofeedback in um, well uh, in addiction-related uh, treatment or uh, in relation to addiction is that neurofeedback can be used to exercise control, control over behavior, so over breaking the stereotypes and uh, all this uh, overlearned and habitual responses. So you increase your frontal function, you in increase your ability to inhibit some particular behaviors and be in control. Another thing is that you can use neurofeedback to be able to control not the behavioral as such, but such as things like emotional dysfunctions. And you can getting more and more in control of your behavior in your reactivity, and uh, uh, so once you combine it with any other means or uh, treatment or intervention, so this is a way how to get back in charge or whatever you are doing and to prevent for, you know, further possible, uh, let's call it relapse or some excessive uh, drug-taking or drug-seeking behaviors. 
So this teaches you control, self-regulation, to be yourself responsible for your behavior and not be, uh, you know, controlled by environment and situations you're in. Okay, I want to thank our guests very much tonight, Tato Sokadze and Chris Stewart from University of Louisville. And uh, next week, come back, our first guest will be Jennifer Talley, who teaches addiction treatment and harm reduction at the New School University. And our second guest will be talking about doing underground needle exchange in Texas, where needle exchange is illegal. He's going to be anonymous. It should be a really interesting show, so everyone come back next week. Bye. All right, bye.